You're listening to COSAM Talks, the monthly podcast for Auburn University's College of Sciences and Mathematics. Thank you for listening. This is the November 2020 episode, and today's topic is something that is very near and dear to my heart and my stomach, and as we'll learn later today, also my gut and pretty much everything else. (laughs) But uh, today we're talking about food. And I have with me now uh, Stephen Kasparik, a graduate student in the Department of Biological Sciences, who was also my guest back in September, which if you haven't heard that podcast yet, go back and listen to it. Just stop this one, pause it, go back, listen to that podcast, then come back to this one. Uh, So thanks for being here, Stephen. Hey, Philip. Thank you. How's it going? Uh, Pretty good. Uh, And we also have with us Dr. Annie Kirby, a registered dietitian and assistant professor at VCOM Auburn. Uh, thank you for being with us, Annie. Yes, good to be here. So first of all, Dr. Kirby, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I'm an assistant professor at the medical school. So I'm teaching all of the nutrition content within the medical curriculum, which occurs during the first two years of their medical education. And then also I perform research and my area of interest is really looking at the effect of dietary interventions in the prevention and treatment of adiposity-based chronic conditions. So before you were at VCOM, you actually worked with the uh, Auburn University Pharmacy doing things with healthy tigers, right? Right. So not before, actually in conjunction with, I've been with VCOM since 2015 And around that same year, I decided to do some clinical hours with AUPCC. They were gracious enough to let me come in and work with patients about eight hours a week. So counseling really anyone who wanted to come in, um, if they had questions about weight loss or GI conditions or cardiac conditions, anything nutrition related, then I was counseling patients on. Okay. Uh, One thing I wanted to start with was about Healthy Tigers because... Uh, This is a program that is specific just to Auburn, but I feel like it has, uh, it's something I think that a lot of other organizations do, and it has a goal of trying to get people to go to their doctor just in general. Um, So can you just tell me just a little bit about Healthy Tigers, and and I think I may have touched on the purpose, but (laughs) a little bit about what the purpose is. Yeah, so Healthy Tigers is a program through the AEPCC. It is a biometric screening program that employees who are on the insurance, Auburn Insurance, if they come in once a year, uh, once within a calendar year, to assess their lipid parameters, their glycemic parameters, their height and weight and BMI, then it provides them a discount off their insurance. And this is a really good way to keep track of health over the course of years, um, make sure that people are aware of just what's going on. As you all know, years become hard and long, and we forget to think about just our health in general. So it's a good touch point to keep your mind on your health. Okay. So with these numbers that you get, with these parameters, um, which I know even if you go to your normal doctor for your yearly checkup you're going to get your blood pressure your your weight your bmi your cholesterol level of all these numbers in your experience which ones are the ones that we really need to pay attention to and and kind of what do they mean for our health right and 
to be honest, all of the measures are important, especially depending on what your family history is. So if you have a family history of diabetes, then that glucose may be very important to you and wanting to monitor that over a yearly time frame is, is going to be more important. Whereas if high blood pressure maybe runs in your family, then that's going to be a value that's going to be most important to you. But across the board, just having a better understanding of your blood pressure in conjunction with your glucose, in conjunction with your lipids, will tell you a story about what's going on and what areas of focus within your lifestyle and other things would be important for you. Okay. So it's more of just an overall snapshot of everything. And then uh, if you do have some individual history, then there may be one number or two numbers that are more important for you to track. I think that individual aspect of things is going to come into play a lot more in our discussion today as well. It's also that time of the year. Uh, Unfortunately, we now have a new disease to worry about with COVID-19. And we have the yearly flu now uh, starting to creep back in. And just our normal colds and, and whatever other diseases may be around, bacterias and and uh, viruses and all that but with nutrition with food are there any ways that that we can use food to our advantage to maybe help boost our immune system so i'll start by saying that um, obviously diet is very important to your immune system Um, the components of a diet there are many you know we primarily focus on the macronutrients in terms of energy but they're all the micronutrients and the micronutrients are really important to helping to support our immune system. And that's what we we sort of talk about with nutrition and immunity is supporting the immune system versus necessarily boosting it. Um, Because that gives the implication that, you know, if we do this in an acute moment, then we're gonna have a heightened immune system to be able to combat these things. And really we just wanna have a responsive and supportive environment for the immune system. So interestingly, in the United States, many people are, we don't see overt deficiencies in these micronutrients, but we do see a lot of marginal deficiencies. And you don't, there's no signs and symptoms of these things. And so you may not know if your immune system isn't functioning at the level that it could be. So just by incorporating more fruits and vegetables, we know that those are things that as a society, we just don't consume enough of then it's gonna offer up all the micronutrients, such as things like zinc and Mm -hmm. other things that will help to support your response to any kind of insult that you may get, like a cold or a flu, you know, maybe COVID. You see now, even in the treatment of COVID, they're supplementing with things like vitamin D Mm -hmm. as a supportive measure to help with that treatment. So just an overall focus on eating more whole foods, especially those fruits and vegetables, to get at those micronutrients is gonna be very beneficial during this time. What about anything we should avoid? Well, I don't love to talk about avoidance because for one, no one likes to restrict anything and, and food plays a lot of different roles in the body, right? It's, it's there for mental health, it's there for physical health. But in terms of avoidance, um, I think that we do need to be careful with the types of fats that we consume. We know that there are some fats that are just better at promoting a lot of inflammation in the body, whereas fats like your omega-3s are a lot better at sort of limiting the inflammatory response. And inflammation does have a role. It is important in health, 
but too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Right. So I think just having a better balance in the amount of food that we consume and the types of foods we consume is more important than thinking about what we should avoid. Kind of along those lines of boosting our immune system, something that over the past few years I've kind of taken an interest in is how food can also affect how we feel. It can affect our mood. It can affect how much energy we have, depending on what we eat, what we don't eat, that sort of thing. And this this all has to do with a connection between our gut and our brains. And so let me start with you, Stephen. Can you just touch on a little bit of basics of, of how this works? The brain-gut connection really has a lot to do with the bacteria in our guts, the bacteria which we rely upon to digest a lot of what we eat. And so the byproducts of all that digestion, that can directly influence how we feel because those byproducts may indirectly control the production of various neurotransmitters or the bacteria themselves, once they're done metabolizing that food, the results may be neurotransmitters themselves, which enter our bloodstreams and basically, big picture, can make it up into our central nervous systems. Yeah, so we have all these little, little microorganisms living in our gut. And depending on what we eat, Uh, Basically, what you're saying is depending on what we eat, they can produce things that may not be beneficial for us. It's quite the contrary. At least in a lot of the literature I've been reviewing, I suppose it's a two-way street. Depending on the specific bacteria which resides in our gut and what they're producing and what their activity is essentially the effects it's having on our overall body, it could be good or it could be bad. There's was a, a really compelling study which looked at a large group of people and the relationship between depression and the specific species and genera mm-hmm. of bacteria in their guts. This study also looked at quality of life and the data how they handled conducting the statistics it was it was very robust because you know they they validated this group of people against just a a a random sample population just to see if you know everything kind of checked out and it certainly did so these results you know in particular there were two genera of bacteria which really strongly associated with depression. So really, it's not, from what you've read, it's not so much about, I mean, it is definitely about what we eat, but it's how the bacteria in our gut, which specific bacteria we have in our gut, interact with what we eat. If we have certain types in there, then then they may interact well with it, or if we have an overabundance of a certain type of bacteria, it may interact negatively. Absolutely. So yeah, it it all kind of goes back to that two-way street. And I just want to highlight really quickly, you know, how something that's going on in our guts, how that translates into, you know, changes that are being made up in our brains. And so 
a lot of that relies upon our, our vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. And so you you can really think of the vagus nerve as essentially an interstate connecting a lot of different organs from our heart, lungs, as far as uh, we're concerned today, our gut, it's connecting that to our brain. And so the activity of digestion and, and what the bacteria are producing, those byproducts, those results can ultimately lead to changes which are communicated along that interstate up to our brain. So that, that's kind of just a, a big picture sense for how our body as a system, something that's happening down in our guts can, you know, have a larger overall impact. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, from, from your side, uh, Dr. Kirby, um, so from your side, Dr. Kirby, with food and, and our nutrition, are there any ways we can help to maintain a good, I don't know if culture is the right word, but just a, a good group of the microorganisms in our gut so that we won't let the bad ones take over anything. I mean, I've, I've heard one thing, and I think this is why some people are probably against antibiotics, is because they go in and they don't just get rid of the bad bacteria. They get rid of all the bacteria. And so then that leaves your gut just open to whatever's going to take over. So what are some ways that we can not necessarily maybe repopulate, but we can get our gut healthy through food? Yeah, that's a really great question. And the antibiotics is a big point. We know that when you go on antibiotics, it very commonly does disrupt the microbiome in the gut. And it can do so for some studies showing up to a year. Mm. So it can be very challenging to repopulate the gut with those healthy microbiota. So we talk a lot about probiotics. You probably hear a lot about it in the news. Oh yeah, I've, but that's I've that's the actually <laughs> that's the actual microbiome piece. But what we don't talk a lot about are the prebiotics, and this is the food mm. which you kind of spoke to that feed the microbiome, and what is going to help to populate it with the healthier biome or the healthier microbes that we want versus the unhealthier microbes. And so where you get these prebiotics from all the foods that we tend not to consume in high enough quantities. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains, fiber, you know, the population as a whole consumes only like 10 to 15 grams of fiber a day. And we really need to be consuming like 25 to 35 grams of fiber a day. So just making that shift over to a higher, higher fiber diet would have a very profoundly positive impact on the microbiome. Just want to jump in real quickly here as far as how our immune system relates to eating healthy, eating a lot of fiber, and really kind of supporting a, a nice, uh, you know, an effective population of, of microbiota. If we have more of the good guys, more of the good bacteria lining our, our guts and, and doing their thing, that's called competitive exclusion because then the pathogens and, you know, the things that can become infectious and make us sick, they don't have a, a place to really set up shop. So, you know, I think Dr. Kirby makes an excellent point as far as eating more fiber and really kind of making sure those bacteria are, are well-fed. Yeah, and also to, to further that, the largest portion of your immune system is located in your gut. Mm-hmm. So just knowing that, you know, greater than 50% of your immune system is going to be located in your gut. So knowing that 
it is it increases that point of what you put in really does matter to your overall health. I've heard that when you get an overabundance of the what we would refer to as the bad bacteria in your gut, that you can starve it out by not giving your body the things that it feeds on. In particular, there's 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 one that I can't remember the exact name of it, but it feeds off of sugar. And so the more sugar you get, the more this one bacteria tends to overpopulate itself in your body. So if you just cut out like refined sugars, it tends to starve it and gets that population back under control. Is, is this something that you guys have either seen studies on or, or, or seen actually happen? Yeah, I think there is a, a pretty good association with what we would call like an obesogenic diet, which tends to be higher in things like refined sugar, salt, and saturated fat with having that more pathogenic microbiome versus a less obesogenic diet or one that is more like a Mediterranean style diet that has a lot of those prebiotics that are there to sort of help to encourage the growth of the healthier microbiota at the expense of those pathogenic microbiomes. So yes, and we have to be a little bit careful because there is this, we commonly think, okay, I'm just going to eliminate sugar from my diet. Right. Fiber is a sugar technically. Um, You know, all these carbohydrates are classified as sugar. So it is really about reducing the amount of refined carbohydrate, the things, the things that we see that are in the highly processed foods that uh, tend to be very highly palatable. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is this is something I think we'll get into uh, in next month's podcast, but referring to things as getting rid of sugar or getting rid of processed foods, and th- those are very general. I mean, very general terms because, like we had we had talked a little before recording about saying low carb and doing low carb, but vegetables have a lot of carbs because fiber itself is is when you look at the label on the thing it says carbs you have 10 grams of carbs and nine of those might be dietary fiber and the fiber is not not bad for you so you kind of have to be careful saying you know i'm eating low carb i'm eating low sugar and then you're sitting there chomping on a banana which has a lot of sugar in it so it's it's more about it's it's not about specifically saying get rid of sugar like you said or get rid of carbs or things like that. It's more along, uh, at least from what I've seen, maybe more, I, I say less processed, but I mean, you can take ground beef and say that's processed because it's been ground. So these overly processed foods with all the additives and, and all that. Yeah, we that, call it ultra processed. Yeah. Yeah, ultra mm-hmm. processed. That's that's a perfect term for it. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it's more about getting more what what you would call whole foods, right? It's just crazy as far as you are what you eat. Just as far as the microbiota are concerned, this past summer, I really kind of started to get into this topic and I realized it's, it's almost like we're not eating for ourselves. It's really we're eating for our friends in our guts. I mean, those are the guys that depending on what they're doing and what that population looks like, it impacts us. Uh, how we feel, our mood, a lot of different things. That's something I've seen a lot about too. And just some of the things I've read, which I haven't gone in depth into studies and things, but just about different 
different foods, different ways of eating, different diets. I know we, we spoke about fermenting mm-hmm. yogurt, for mm-hmm. instance, or brewing beer. Don't you have a kind of a brewing operation going as far as, you know, you're you yourself and you, as a hobby, you kind of, oh, yeah. you're yeah. working. So, okay, that's pretty yeah. cool. I've done a bit of, quite a bit of beer brewing and uh, I've kind of ventured into fermenting. And a lot of that is for the probiotic side of things because the fermented foods, a lot of what I read is that they are very good for helping your gut and replenishing your microbes in there. Yeah, so the interesting thing is that, you know, your microbiome turns over regularly. And so it's this constant focus on making sure the correct microbiota are in there and also still feeding it. And so fermented foods is a good way to do that. You know, and you can get that. We actually sometimes make our own kimchi. We got a kimchi mm-hmm. maker. Um, so that's a, that's a really good um, fermented food. My husband was actually a brewer himself okay. for a long time until we came down to Auburn. So it makes sense that a dietitian and a, a fermenter would get together. But, you know, just the, I think sometimes when we start to think about these fermented foods, a lot of times people will start to consume them in their diet as a means to get at this uh, healthier microbiome. But you can't forget about all the other things that have to right. go along with it. It's not sort of a one-stop shop where this is all you do and then poof, you're, you suddenly got a great microbiome. So fermented foods in the context of a whole food diet, it can be a, a very positive thing. So kind of in conclusion for all this, like we've been talking about, your I've heard the phrase before that your gut is kind of like a second brain. But it's it's a lot more than that. It it has that connection with your brain. It has that connection with your immune system. And it's really important for us to try to keep it as healthy as we can through what we eat. And, and like you were saying, it's not as simple as just saying, I'm going to start taking a probiotic or I'm just going to cut out all sugar. It's more of an overall approach. This is something that, uh, would you say it would be maybe recommended that somebody, if they're having trouble figuring out what to do, maybe go see a dietitian or a nutritionist? Absolutely. Um, I think it would be very helpful for everyone to be able to work with a dietitian. Um, But we have to be careful because there are lots of people who are out there who are calling themselves experts and nutritionists. And the term nutritionist is not federally protected. So you could call yourself a nutritionist and you could start to see people and to guide them through these lifestyle changes. But it's really important that people work with a registered dietitian. So that way, you know, you're working with someone who's going to be providing this evidence-based guidance on some of these nuances that we kind of have to focus on when we're making these lifestyle changes. So what's a good way you would, you would say someone could find a registered dietitian? Well, we are an elusive creature. I would say Um, they're, in major cities, they're a lot easier to come by. Um, nowadays, there are more and more dietitians who are offering up their services, especially like through telehealth and things like that. So that makes them way more accessible. But you can go to eatright.org, which is the a website for our academy. And there is a feature on there that says find an RD. So that would be a good way. You can put in your zip code and it should list the RDs that are in your location. That's good to know. Well, we'll make sure that's down in the, uh, what I would call the show notes down below. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you guys can go check that website out. Well, once again, uh, thank you, Stephen, and thank you, Dr. Kirby, for being here today. Uh, like I said, kind of hinted to, this is part one of a, a two-part series. The next one will be in December, 
And so stay tuned. Uh, Stephen and Dr. Kirby will be back with me for that one where we'll go a little bit more in depth into some of these things. So thank you guys for listening.